toil and trouble, fetch me the Ghostbusters and their spectral doubles. Oh, hello. I hope you enjoyed our first little bonus podcast skit. Up next, we summon from the depths an episode from January 28th, 2021, covering the real Ghostbusters episode, Citizen Ghost. Join us as we discover how the Ghostbusters got their new uniforms and the circumstance which led to them adopting a certain little green spud. And welcome to the pod rig. This is Under Consultation Extra, a patron exclusive podcast guide through the licorice all sorts of 90s TV, although this is again the 80s. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, if I must. And I've driven off that bridge once already. I am Ash Versus. This episode of The Real Ghostbusters, Citizen Ghost, aired on the 21st of March 1988 here in the United Kingdom. We have got Fatal Attraction at the top of the box office, and our number one is Kylie Minogue's I Should Be So Lucky. Now, this was the second hit song for Kylie Minogue, who was breaking out of Neighbours, where she was becoming a household name, mostly in the UK, because weirdly, Neighbours is bigger in the UK than it is in Australia, or certainly was then. But this is the first original song that Kylie had as a hit because her first hit, The Locomotion, was a cover and, oh man, multiple, multiple artists recorded The Locomotion. It was originally written by Gerald Goffin and Carol King. The main one I remember is, I think it was Grand Funk Railroad. That That's the one I remember. There was some kind of like 70s American rock version, but it put her on the map. It, uh, it did immense, immense money and this came along and if one thing this song screams other than Kylie, it is Stock, Aitken, and Waterman. Mm-hmm. I, I love this song, man. Absolutely love this song. I'm a big Kylie fan, really. Like, I don't think she has really put a foot wrong in her 30-year-plus you know, career as a, as a pop songstress. I think she's grand. I was about to go, Street Fighter, but... Uh... <laughs> Hey, now, I, I will go to back for Street Fighter. I mean, I, I, it's a really funny story about how she got, you know, auditioned for Street Fighter. They were flying over to Australia to film, and Stephen D'Souza, on the plane, read the in-flight magazine that had Kylie Minogue on the front cover because she's an Australian star, and was just like, hey, we could probably put her in the movie. She could be Cammy. Because they cast her at that point. She's Australian. Australian is close enough to British. What does it matter? Oh, I mean, they were changing everything at that point anyway. She was like, you know, 
uh, the muscles from Brussels was playing the all-American hero Guile. I think we were, you know, they were making enough changes at this point. Dal Sim's a doctor, for God's sake. You know what, though, you're right. In her musical career, she has not put a foot wrong. Um, she has continued to reinvent herself, redefine herself, just be this incredibly talented, creative force, uh, be an incredible kind of person as well. The way she's dealt with various hardships and health issues and bounced back. Um... No, I've got all the all the time in the world for Kylie. Um, this wouldn't be the first song of hers that I would choose to listen to. It's not the one that immediately leaps to mind. At the moment, I think that's actually Can't Get You Out of My Head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine's um, Spinning Around. It's the one that always jumps to mind for me when I think of Kylie. It's like Spinning Around, actually, funny enough, and, and this really, because I, I this song is very... It, it makes me think a lot of my childhood because I had cousins that were massive, like that were slightly older than me, that were massively into Kylie. So I heard a lot of Kylie when I was younger. I think the other song that immediately leaps to mind, and I'm probably more likely to listen to than this, might be a bit controversial. It's a duet with Robbie Williams. I was going to say, Kids, Kids, man, it's a great song. It's got a very bombastic nature, and it's it's fun and playful between the two of them. But this song, this song, went to number one in Australia unsurprisingly in finland in germany in hong kong in ireland in israel in switzerland and in the uk and it also broke the top 10 in at least half a dozen other countries japan didn't like it it only made 63 there hmm kylie's got like a you know an impressive track record behind it not only like a string of number ones through various decades like she's still releasing music now she had new singles out last year she's had new singles out like you know as recently as like you know not a couple of months ago she is constantly around uh which is lovely to see really you know it is really nice as you say like she's had quite a few hardships and and sort of health issues over the years and it's nice to see that she's never been like downtrodden by any of it oh yeah i like kylie big big fan and i bloody love this song as well and we're gonna get uh kylie i'm gonna do bucky o'hare's kylie uh in games master in season four where she takes on john major again bucky o'hare is of all people what game are they playing luke they're playing fucking wind jammers mate oh I man i love wind jammers <laughs> wind jammers probably my all-time favorite neo geo game yeah i see you king of fighters i don't care a look that led to an evening we were attracted to each other at the party that was obvious you're on your own for the night that's also obvious a mistake he'd regret all his life now where's your wife here with a strange girl being a naughty boy i don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime i gotta see you this is gonna stop no it's not gonna stop it's gonna go on and on she keeps calling the apartment hello every time beth answers the phone she hangs up i'm scared jimmy you play fair with me do you have an affair with her i'll play fair with you i don't want to lose my family how could you do that are you scared of me are you you're afraid if you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. You understand? Daddy! It's um, it's not a film I've seen in quite some time. It's been years and years. Probably, I mean, I say this a lot on this podcast, but probably since my university days would be the last time that I saw it. Because, I mean, I did a film degree for university, which is why I watched a lot of films when I was when I was at, in, in my university years, and then. Also, my film degree didn't require me to go to school a lot, so I had a lot more time on my hands to just go and like, well, hang out in a toy shop, which I did a lot because I, I'm, you know, basically Jane Silent Bob, work at Game Station, and just sit at home and like 
do some drugs and watch some movies. That was basically my university years. You're making me really regret not stick with university at this point because <laughs> one year, then I was into the world of work. Yeah. I haven't seen Fatal Attraction in a long time. It is, however, a very good movie with a very good cast. It is a psychological, erotic thriller. Three words that always make someone sit up and go, hello, because it's basically horny horror. Yeah. <laughs> this one with added manipulation and gaslighting. Um, basically, the film centers on a man who has a weekend affair with a woman and the woman doesn't let it end and becomes obsessed with him, becomes a right little bunny boiler. And and is this where the film with bunny boiler originated? Where the term um, bunny boiler originated from, yeah. She basically, he tries to break it off. She tries to commit suicide or she fakes to a degree an attempted suicide to get him to, to stay with her. I remember the film because Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, killer cast. I also remember the poster. The poster for this is just so vivid because it's kind of monochromatic photo of Douglas and Close in an embrace, where he is actually, I've just noticed, looking at the poster on my screen now, he's, he's cupping. <laughs> a bit of cupping there. There is, there is. He's, uh, he's adding some, he's, he's going for the best supporting actor role. Uh, <laughs> but there is a tear, that tear down the middle, like the photo's torn in half, and it's just blood red behind it. That, to me, is what says, this is also on the edge of horror. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a cracker of a film. How much of a cracker of a film? $14 million budget. What do you reckon the box office was, Luke? It's 88, so it's not going to be like huge, but like, what did you say the budget was? 14? 1 4. 14 yeah, one, million dollars. I think it's upwards of 30. Higher? 50? Higher? 80? Higher? Bloody hell for 88. Uh, 100? Higher? 120? Higher, higher. And we're, we're sure this is not adjusted for inflation. This is according to Box Office Mojo. Hmm, okay. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, okay, so uh, 200. Too high. You're out, I'm afraid. <laughs> but didn't you do well? It was 156,645,693. On a $14 million budget. I should have seen that coming, really, because like this was number one in the UK for months. Like It, it was basically... It overtook... Planes, Trains and Automobiles in the UK, which was like, you know, the weekend of like the 5th of February. And it was the number one through towards the end of March. We're at the end of March now, and it's still number one at the box office. It absolutely killed the box office. We, I, If we were doing this in a Gigs Master run, we'd have been like the uh, the meatloaf thing that we're in at the moment. We're like, we're going to have to spread out some facts about this movie because we've got this sucker for like 10 weeks. But let's get past the uh, Fatal Attraction. Let's get past I Should Be So Lucky because we are reviewing an episode of The Real Ghostbusters, which was voted for by you Patreon backers. It was, we decided to do like a um, like an, an animated run of like cartoons from our youth. We thought that'd be a really fun thing to do. So we had uh, RGB, Bucky O'Hare, Ulysses 31 and DuckTales. And you said that when we put this together, you thought that Ulysses 31 would be a bit of a, a runaway winner of this. I thought Ulysses would be the runaway winner. I, but then I think before the votes had even started to tally up, I thought, now I reckon people will go Bucky because I Bucky's Bucky. become part of our, like, I'm not a huge fan of Bucky. It's not that I've got anything against it. It just, it wasn't part of my childhood. For whatever reason, I was watching the other side, whatever was on against it. But I thought, well, people will vote for Bucky because it's kind of Bucky O'Hare ears, your love of the game, the, the theme music and all that stuff. I just thought, well, that's the way that's going to go. I was very 
happy that it was the real <laughs> Ghostbusters, but I'd have been happy talking about any of those four. There always is, whenever we do the vote, I think the chance that one of them we're like, mm. I mean, we could talk about it, but you know, there's others we'd rather talk about. This was just a flat, I'm cool with whatever. Yeah, totally. Like, I, I would have been really happy if DuckTales would have won, but I think I would have spent the entire episode wishing we were reviewing the reboot. Uh, because, I mean, I would say that the original DuckTales has not held up over time. I'd also argue that Bucky O'Hare has not particularly held up over time. And I'm, you know, I'm a Bucky O'Hare kid. Like, there's, I will talk about this when we're talking about Ghostbusters, but there were like uh, quite a few shows that I was obsessed with when I, when I was a child, obsessed with to the point that I would ask my parents for toys off that show. Uh, and Bucky O'Hare is one of them. But with real Ghostbusters, it is a show that was great at the time. It was great on the various rewatches that I did of it because I had VHS copies of like back in the day when VHS had like two episodes of a cartoon on it, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. And I had loads of those VHSs. It held up when I rewatched them multiple times. It held up when I watched it as a teenager. It held up when I watched it in my 20s. It holds up now I'm watching it in my 30s. Ah, it's just, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's, it's, but, and we were saying like off mic before we came on, the, first 13 and the syndication episode the the 65 are absolutely spot on there's only a handful of duds within there when you get into season three and all the q5 stuff that's when i think the show starts to fall off a cliff we lose a lot of the good cast well well, i say we lose lorenzo music basically and uh laura summers and um arsenio hall Uh, yeah it just yeah the slime and the real ghostbusters stuff that that that's when it's less good Yeah, I mean, this show does turn up on Netflix occasionally. It does turn up on Amazon Video, either via Prime or to buy. If you want to check it out, just look at the first two seasons. Because Mm -hmm. that second season, if they're listing it properly, is 65 episodes. And that's the thing, when you think, oh, only the first two seasons. No, that's that's a lot of cartoon. Yeah. Off the back of watching a bunch of real Ghostbusters episodes, I thought, let's go and look at some of the other ones. Not necessarily ones we put up to vote, but other cartoons that... I was watching at that time and that I still regard highly. Ulysses dropped a couple of episodes of that on. That still holds up, but that's telling a big, that's telling a saga. Literally, that is telling a saga. Jason the Wheeled Warriors, sadly never completed, never got the end story, but there was a story arc. That holds up pretty well. Thundercats, that will be a future competitor because that show, particularly the first couple of seasons, holds up really well and has a definitive conclusion. We get a proper end story for Lion-O, an end game with Mumra, and I really appreciate they got the chance to do that. Ninja Turtles. Yeah, when you get to the Red Sky seasons, it's it's less good. I struggle with the first couple of seasons, I'm afraid. Well, yeah. (laughs) Because all these cartoons, all these Saturday morning cartoons, tend to have a formula, even Ghostbusters. And when you watch a bunch of them, it becomes more noticeable. It's just the side effect. They weren't designed to be like binge watched really ninja turtles it feels more noticeable because there are so many plot repetitions mm-hmm. and it's very clear the more episodes they produce for the syndication and to get it out there the more they are going okay we need another episode can we change the color can we put bebop in a new hat basically yeah it's got a lot of animation balls ups on on tmnt as well and the other thing with, with Turtles for me uh, and why I think that 87 doesn't hold up particularly well, uh, you know, outside of your nostalgia goggles is because we've had much better iterations of it since. Like 1990 is much better. 
I think the 2002 series is much better. The, the 2013 series is way better. Like that we've had much better turtles since the 87 cartoon. Absolutely. I've deliberately avoided He-Man because He-Man is as guilty as Ninja Turtles for plot recycling, but it has the one distinct advantage of it had a bunch of writers behind it, including a guy we'll be talking about today who did their best to write fun stories with lots and lots of jokes that went over the heads of kids, despite the fact that they were basically being asked to write episodes around toys. Yeah, I really like um, this period of time, which was basically that toy companies wanted to sell toys and so they got shows to market those toys they were essentially just half an hour toy commercials to make you want to go to the store yell at your parents to buy the thing until they buy the thing you go home and you play with the thing all of these shows are very very toyetic they've all got the same brand about them uh, this gi joe turtles he-man thundercats they've all got this brand of buy the toy buy the toy buy the toy and that's absolutely fine like but what I always appreciate about these shows is that the team of writers behind them never let like they could have just used this as an easy paycheck because they're like, well, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Like it's a show to sell toys, just make whatever. But they actually care. And people like J. Michael Straczynski are people that like they wanted to make a good show. They didn't just want to sell toys. They wanted to make a show that was good. And I've, I've that's always been I've, I've I mean I've obviously appreciated them because I watch other cartoons, but now as an adult. I appreciate it even more because I think that's a lot of art and craft that goes into that. Whereas a lesser person might have just gone, ah, fuck it, all we're doing is selling toys anyway. The kids are going to buy the toys. Kids are dumb. And I think in the case of the real Ghostbusters, it requires a special level of talent because Ninja Turtles, leaving aside the whole Ninja Hero bullshit that we had to put up with, they went from being the dark, kind of moody, daredevil type ripoffs of the original comic books to being whoa dude pizza party time and we've got weapons but we never really use them or if we do they're against robots cowabunga and there was never really much in the way of actual like threat or peril Mm. oh it's tuesday april's being kidnapped that's cool as long as we get it wrapped up before the end of wednesday because thursday splinter's being kidnapped And then Friday, one of us is going to have a crisis of confidence, but it all be wrapped up in 22 minutes and the final shot will be of us eating pizza, laughing or both. That was it. That was the formula. Now, Ghostbusters as a property is a comedy, but it's scary. I read an interview with Jason Reitman. It's just been published uh, in print today as of as of recording. It's in the new episode of Empire. Uh, You will hear this before it goes out. print. I recommend you check it out either online or in print. It talks about uh, the process of making the film a bit. Uh, apparently, Ivan's seen the film. Yeah, I suddenly cried watching it, yeah. Cried watching it and afterwards said, I'm proud to be your father. I teared up at that because I'm just like, I'm trying not to get excited about Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I'm oh, really, know, really fucking failing at not getting excited about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Don't fuck it up, guys. Oh, you don't, I'm not, I'm not asked, that's the thing, I'm not expecting them to have the magic of the first two films. I want it to have its own actual magic. If we get kisses yeah. to the past, beautiful. And I know we will. Oh, what, 100%. Yeah. As like, I mean, that's, that's the formula, isn't it? The, the, the secret is, though, is to not do it hand over fist. Like, it's odd in, I mean, it's, it's difficult to have genuine issues with the 2016 reboot because it's kind of like you, because of basically like idiots online hated it for stupid reasons. 
genuine criticism about it seems to sort of like fall on deaf ears and it's, it's impossible to kind of talk about but one of the biggest issues i had with it when i went in there a everyone's a comedy character so that didn't work and b was just like clanging references to the original like just like the film was falling over itself to reference the original and i was like fuck be your own movie it was actually it, it kept taking me out of like the uh, what lack of enjoyment i had of it anyway because I was just like, I don't need another reference. I know this is a remake. I know this is a reboot. You don't have to, every five minutes, remind me of that fact. I have deliberately avoided putting, for the most part, my opinions on the Ghostbusters 2016 movie online. Because it's not a bun fight I wanted to get into. And it's not, I didn't want to get grouped in with an incredibly toxic community that were shitting on the film before it even gone before the lens. As soon as like the announcement was made, it's an all-female reboot. That was it. The floodgates were open for for dickheads online and the, the toxic fan base to come through and be like, "Well, this film's shit," I, and I've already decided that it is shit, which was only bolstered up when the, the trailer came out. The trailer was a bit shit, but you know what? Fuck it. It's 2021. I survived 2020. <laughs> I'm going to put very succinctly, or as succinctly as I can, on the ground my thoughts on Ghostbusters 2016 as a film. I don't hate it. I think it's got a lot of flaws. And I think a lot of those can be put down to the fact that the story isn't great. Nope. The director, while a talented director, is not a right fit for what this movie is trying to be. I have nothing against an all-female Ghostbusters cast. I have nothing against the cast they had. I actually thought there were some great, great actors in that film, some great comedians. And I think under a different director or a different script, I would be looking at that film a lot differently. But they needed a firmer director and one that would paper them back i i think it also had some like real like, like the, that first trailer which is like it's big it's big punches that like fatty falls down is essentially like that's what they're going for they're going for that sort of level of trope and then one of them going like oh that's gonna leave a mark it, it was like it was baseline comedy but also had that judd apatow era problem of just like well, we've got a script, but don't really look at the script. Just say what you want and we'll cut around it. And what you end up with then is two hours of sort of unfiltered, when not every joke lands. Also, I don't know about you, but the original Ghostbusters, when I first saw it, I was terrified of certain bits of it. So scary. In that interview I mentioned earlier, I forgot my point about that interview with, um, with Jason Reitman, when he told, mentioned Spielberg that he was working on Ghostbusters. Uh, Spielberg's immediate reaction was Library Ghost, top 10 scares of all time. Yeah. I mean, my history with Ghostbusters is that I was born in 85, so the film had already been out you know, b- before I was even born. This was my first introduction to Ghostbusters, was the cartoon. And I loved the cartoon. And then when I was about... I, I was so obsessed with the cartoon, and I loved it so much, that my dad and my brother lied to me when they went to the cinema to see Ghostbusters 2. Because my dad was worried because the first film's quite scary. He didn't want to take four-year-old me to go to the cinema and I would just be scared. So they lied to me as if they were going somewhere else. So they could go. So my dad could take my nine-year-old brother to go and see Ghostbusters 2. And then when my dad sort of felt like I was like, you know, quote unquote old enough to see the movie. I was like five years old or whatever. I, rem- I my, my first instincts were, A, why do they look so different? B, why aren't they the Ghostbusters yet? And C, I couldn't finish it because it was too scary. My dad purposely made me go behind the sofa during the library ghost scene because he knew that I wouldn't get past that bit. But when the terror dogs break out of the statue and that red glowing eye 
uh, shows up. I hid into my dad. I was so scared. And my dad was like, right, I think that's enough now. And I, I didn't see the end of the film for years. I had a similar experience with the terror dogs. It wasn't when they first appeared. It was the party scene mm. with Lois Tully, which I will just say, Rick Moranis is a tour de force in this film because when he does his whole route around the party, talking to all the guests, one shot, no cuts, yep, not until the improv. moment when he opens his bedroom door, chucks a coat in, lands on a terror dog, terror dog bursts out and chases him. Now, the first time I saw Ghostbusters, that wasn't the breaking point for me, but that was the bit that actually scared me the most because my child brain did not realize it was a bedroom. I was like, he's putting a coat in a wardrobe because I've got a wardrobe and that's where my coat lives. Mm -hmm. So I became convinced, like little five, six-year-old me, that there could be a terror dog in my wardrobe. <laughs> And apparently there were a number of nights when my mum used to come up to check on me, like after I'd gone to sleep, and she'd find the wardrobe door open because my logic was if the door was always open, it, it couldn't sneak up on me. Yeah, that makes sense. I always, it always gives me a little internal chuckle whenever I see it now. Oh, yeah. But uh, back to the 2016 movie, it makes me sad to watch it. And I will watch it occasionally because it does have some okay and some fun moments. But it's just, it, it needed a stricter director. I reckon actually yeah. most of the problems would have been fixed with a stricter director because a stricter director would have also probably gone, this script, we need to work on this script. We need some more revisions. We definitely don't need a song and dance number. Mm -hmm. Every one of those people is capable of playing it straight. And they yeah. just didn't have a director that wanted to see that. I think it probably would have worked a lot better with less studio involvement. I mean, that's, that's like asking for, you know, water in the deserts uh, in the Hollywood system at this point, but it reeks of studio involvement and edits and reshoots and focus groups. And and that really stings the movie a lot. Like that, you, the, the movie, like from almost the get-go, just cannot get rid of that stench. So... We're doing an episode of The Real Ghostbusters. We're going to talk a bit about how The Real Ghostbusters came to be. Firstly, I want to thank James, uh, Serial AM, who's had separate conversations with both myself and Luke, because uh, way back in the history of Serial AM at issue four, which, man, that was a good few years ago, they did a lot of stuff on The Real Ghostbusters. Now, I bought this issue. I bought this issue from Orbital Comics in London. It's in storage. Bugger. But... On the Serial AM website, you can buy some kind of compilation issues which combine articles from different ones. And the Ghostbusters stuff is in the first of those. And it only costs a couple of quid. I, I recommend you go and check it out. The entire magazine is just great stuff if you like these kind of cartoons, which I do. And I think you've got a few issues as well, haven't you, Luke? I've, I've got the whole run. Wow. Yeah, oh yeah, I've got the whole run. To tell the story of the real Ghostbusters, we don't even start with Ghostbusters 1984. We start in 1975. Oh, yeah. The live action. The Ghostbusters. Yeah. The Ghostbusters. Three words. We're the Ghostbusters. I'm Spencer. He's Tracy. I'm Kong. We're the Ghostbusters. We're clever, courageous, and strong. Your sleep has been haunted with dispersions and rattlings. Your blood has been curdled. We know what to do. Your skin has the creepies. I wonder what's happening. You're safe in our hands. We will take care of you. The Ghostbusters, spirits and demons, beware. The Ghostbusters, wherever you're hiding out there. 
We're ready for anything. We're bold and we're fearless and never afraid. We're always prepared. We're right there with every home. With us on a job, trouble soon fade. The Ghostbusters do it again. Made by Filmation, but not a two-frame-per-second animation, this starred Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch as Kong and Spencer, and they were accompanied by a gorilla called Tracy. It wasn't a real gorilla, it was a gorilla suit. Tracy was played by a guy called Bob Burns. Now, whatever my feelings about the Ghostbusters and the Ghostbusters cartoon that we'll talk about a bit later, I will not hear a word said against Bob Burns. Bob Burns is an international cinematic treasure. He not only is probably one of the best like ape suit, monkey suit, creature suit guys of his generation. Uh, he's also a massive preserver of props, of film history. He owns the original George Powell time machine and he loves Halloween. He did haunted house Halloween beyond a scale that is even reasonable. He recreated the thing from another world. Like he built an Antarctic base in his yard and people Amazing. were queuing up around the block. He uh, recreated Alien and got Walter Koenig to come out <laughs> and film special. Yeah, this is the crazy shit that went on. You can now go online and find a documentary that he put out on his website back in the early to mid 2000s called Bob Burns Hollywood Halloween. I recommend everyone goes and finds it and watches it because it's a freaking trip. It will show you just like this guy that loves horror, loves fantasy, loves films. And if you didn't love Halloween before, you will after this. That, that's all I'll say. <laughs> anyway, they only made 15 episodes. It was one season. And um, it kind of, as much as anything else, it spoofed Mission Impossible. Uh, they got instructions from a mysterious character in some kind of like everyday object, like, you know, a glass or a clock or something. And it would then blow up at the end. And then they would go, they would find a ghost at a weird location. Uh, they'd have a chase, which was pretty much Scooby-Doo. They would have a ghost dematerializer, and then that's it. Oh, look, a formula in a Saturday morning. Not a cartoon, but as close to one as live action could get. Yeah, and, and the idea of, like, you know, a, a ghost-busting company or, you know, a ghost-catching company was not, like, you know, a, a hugely original. It wasn't like they weren't the first people who had done it. Disney had done a version of it with Mickey Mouse, Goofy, and Donald sort of back in the the, the 40s, I think it was. And Abbott and Costello had done stuff along the same lines. Exactly, yeah. Now we fast forward to the early to mid-80s. Dan Aykroyd is writing a script. Uh, it's originally going to be a vehicle for him and his comedy partner, John Belushi. John Belushi, as is well documented, sadly passes away. The film is rewritten and rescripted and toned down because the original Ghostbusters script, like Stay Puft, was the first act. Yeah, it was going to be like the most expensive movie ever made. Had it got done in like the way that Aykroyd had envisioned it, it was also set in the future and things like that. Like they were just one of like multiple Ghostbuster corporations that were around the world. Like the the kind of like the the uh, to use a nineties parlance, the four one one on Dan Aykroyd is that he's a very good ideas man, but he does need a co writer with him because that co writer can sort of like ground things, and that's what happened with Ghostbusters was, you know, Reitman and Ramus essentially were just like, well, you, you know, the secret in comedy is you take ordinary people and put them in extraordinary situations or take extraordinary people and put them in ordinary situations. So they wanted to ground the movie, set it within New York in modern day and have these regular science guys 
interact with the paranormal world because that would be way funnier uh, of a situation rather than just Stay Puffed is on page 10. Thankfully, the work of Reitman and Ramis, it, it paid off because Ghostbusters was picked up. They got to stick with the cast they wanted and they got kind of the budget they wanted, but they had a big old proviso. They had a year yeah. to go from green light to, and now it's in the cinema. And you think about the production times of a, a fantasy or science fiction, or sort of even just like a normal movie that requires any special effects. It could just be simple stuff like weather or like making it a period piece. A year. Mm-hmm. And it had like 200, over 200 effect shots in there as well in, in 84. But they made their deadline and it went to theatres. Not only did it get pretty good reviews, the public loved it. Globally, it grossed more than $295 million. It was a big old hit. Um, yeah, like it was, it, the, the turnaround is, is kind of like crazy, really, when you think about it. There's a fantastic documentary, Cleaning Up the Town, I think is now available on Blu-ray to get, which I, I, I saw it at the Prince Charles a couple of years ago um, with the, the the filmmakers there. And it's just, it, it, you know, that was a, uh, that was a, a labor of love making that documentary. Like they've been work, they were working on that for years and years and years and years and years. And it is like the definitive, I would say the definitive Ghostbusters documentary. It is definitely out on Blu-ray now. It can be picked up quite reasonably. Also features former guest of the podcast, Mr. Paul Gannon, who is currently uh, funding a book on him and Ghostbusters and ghost hunting. So mm. I think it's on Unbound is where he's funding it. And it's been going for oh, a cool. while, but I funded it because, you know, I like Paul and I like Ghostbusters. It seems like the obvious match. I think the the, the, the real funny thing about like the, the tight turnaround and stuff is that they still weren't like sure whether they're going to be able to use the Ghostbusters name. Columbia suggested we change it. So we thought of calling it Ghostbreakers. We couldn't come up with another good title. At one point, we had 300 extras on the street, all yelling Ghostbreakers. And then we'd say, okay, now you have Ghostbusters. And I said, we can't do this. And got the legal department and said, look, you got to do something about this. They paid Filmation some money to use it in the movie. But the deal was that either of them could use the title in a TV show. I actually didn't know they'd done different takes with the crowd. I thought that the story was that when they got to the point where they were filming with the crowd, because the crowd were really getting into it, and man, apart from one extra, there's one extra in that crowd. That the, just, ginger head, but, the ginger head guy. Oh my God, never I wanted to slap He's a man everywhere. out of frame. He's everywhere. But that New York crowd is so electric. And I'd heard, and I could be wrong, that... By the time they got to that point, the crowd was so into it and chanting Ghostbusters, there was a kind of a, we better get that name now because we're yeah. fucked if we don't. Well, that was, yeah. So Joe Medic tells the story on uh, the Time Life documentary that um, the, the came out in the 2008 DVD box set for the real Ghostbusters. That that was kind of like the moment where they had to do it. So they paid Filmation. I think it was like, it wasn't a lot. They paid them some money to get the name Ghostbusters and Filmation struck the deal with them that they would uh, give them the name with the proviso, you know, with sort of the added bonus that they would get 1% of the profits that were made on the movie. But fun fact for you, Ghostbusters didn't make a profit because the way that films work is essentially you just add in the cost of all the other movies that you've made that year. And you're like, well, actually, as it turns out, this movie that did $290 million at the box office and also made all of this merchandise money, uh, it didn't turn a profit. And actually, it, it, it was a failure. Unfortunately, we can't pay you any of the money. And 
Filmation were hoping to get the rights to be able to make the animated version. They, they wanted to make the animated version of Ghostbusters. They made a pitch for it. Um, although, I mean, Columbia were definitely going to go with Deke anyway. But they were like, they made a pitch for it. I read an interview with one of the presidents of Filmation who said that one of his biggest regrets was that he they, they should have just got the they should have got the animation rights that they shouldn't have gone for the profits they've gone for the animation rights because they wanted to and they made a pitch reel for it but they were always going to go with Deke. I mean, Filmation did make their Ghostbusters cartoon series, but I mean, I can tell you this: it did not make an impression on me. Uh, it, it had no penetration in the Owen household where, when I was a youth. I mean, one is they already had their eye on Deke, which, you know, you're never going to get a funnier cartoon house name. That much I can tell you. But also on the other side, Filmation's parent company did actually take the attitude of, we don't need them. We've already got the name Ghostbusters. Why do we need them? Why do we need them? And their 150 at that point million dollar IP. Why on earth do we need them? Westinghouse, you fucking idiots. That's <laughs> what. And of course, when Filmation did their spin-off, it was called The Ghostbusters. And they actually beat the real Ghostbusters to the air by five days. They debuted on NBC September 8th, 1986. The real Ghostbusters debuted September 13th, 1986 on ABC. And rather than be a direct continuation of the original live-action Ghostbusters TV series, this was actually based on the sons of Kong and Spencer, but Tracy was still the same gorilla. Because Columbia were trying to avoid confusion, they called the cartoon the real Ghostbusters. And it's amazing because as a kid, I had no idea that the entire name of the cartoon basically came from intercompany dick measuring. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Like, it was just, that's what the name of the show was. It wasn't until, yeah, much later in life, I, you know, I found out the reason why the show was, it was called that way. I, I found it interesting. Like, it's, it was always, that, that's what they decided when they, they decided they were doing an animated series. The real Ghostbusters was always the name they were going to use because, like, the, the original Deacon TMS pitch reel is called the real Ghostbusters. So it, it was, yeah, from day one, that was the, it wasn't a, it wasn't a late in the day thing. It was a day one decision. That pitch reel that you just mentioned, it's um, it's out there. It was restored, actually. It was fan restored. I think I sent you the do little like documentary link. That's right, yeah. It's a fascinating look at what the real Ghostbusters could have looked like. They basically look like the actors. They basically look like like it looks. It's a kind of a combination of like Peter Venkman's final form in in real Ghostbusters and Bill Murray. Um, like Ray is kind of less paunchy than he is in sort of the the, the redesigns that they do it, it, it they do look more like and it is just like a three minute music video essentially where um onion head is, is one of the baddies like he gets caught at, at the end of the pitch reel it's a really really good thing i the first time i saw it was on the the time life release and that was like one of its big selling points was the original pitch pilot for the cartoon and i was really really excited to see it and you know much like the turtles went from all red bandanas to like multicolored to tell them apart this pitch reel shows the Ghostbusters in their, I'd say, original colours. It's, it's not. It, it is very much more like kind of like a brighter tan colour than the original jumpsuits. And also because they took a slightly different approach to some of the tech. And actually the, um, the Ghostbusting gear in that was used as the basis for the moulds for the action figures, which is why the proton packs look different. Mm. I do watch it and go, yeah, that colour at least, the, the tan wasn't working. Yeah, particularly because, you know, as we've said 
uh, a few times on this. This is designed to sell toys. Like this is being at the end of the day, this show is being made to sell toys and no kid is going to want to buy four toys that basically look the same. As you said with the turtles, you give them different colors. We give the Ghostbusters different seal. Jim McDermott like redesigned these characters so that they would have individual looks and also quite crucially not look like the actors so we don't have to pay likeness rights. Now, whilst the real Ghostbusters was taking off and becoming an international merchandising and television juggernaut, Filmation's Ghostbusters didn't do so well. But despite the fact that they were, they weren't even the underdog, they weren't even a dog, they were just kind of like an idea of a dog. The real Ghostbusters still took jabs at them. In the first episode, Ghosts Are Us, Janine goes, no, we're not Ghosts Are Us. We're the real Ghostbusters. No, ma'am, this is the real Ghostbusters. And there's a later episode where Ray's um, uh, Ray's family home is visited. As we find out in the episode we're looking at, it's in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ghosts they bust there is a gorilla. Mm-hmm. That's funny. The likenesses, for the most part, were changed quite a bit, as we said. No one really looked like they did in the film. Although, weirdly, Egon in Ghostbusters 2 looks more like Egon in the real <laughs> Ghostbusters, purely in the volume yeah. of hair. Egon has big hair in Ghostbusters 2. Not as big as real Ghostbusters, Egon, but certainly goes up in stature. None of the actors were involved in the real Ghostbusters, although Ernie Hudson infamously auditioned and was told by the director, that's not what Ernie Hudson did in the movie. And Ernie Hudson is, excuse me, motherfucker, I am Ernie Hudson. Arsenio was waiting to go in, sat with him and chatted for a minute, and someone had gone and I hadn't noticed who... He came out and it was Ernie Hudson who had played Winston in the movie. So as Winston, as, as Arsenio and I were talking, he'd come out and they called for Arsenio and he turned back and he looked at me and went, because he thought, I'm going up against the guy who played in the movie. This has got to be some kind of formality. Lo and behold, Arsenio got the job. Yeah, man, the story of Ghostbusters is essentially just shitting on Ernie Hudson. You know, it was like it was originally meant to be Eddie Murphy. And had it been Eddie Murphy, it would have been a much bigger part. But once it was Ernie and it wasn't Eddie, then Ernie doesn't show up until page 40. And he is there for a little bit. Like, you know, he's in the final scene. But then, yeah, like the second movie, he's like the, the courtroom scene. He just disappears. So the weirdest bit of Ghostbusters 2 is that Ernie Hudson just disappears. And then, bless his heart, he has spent the last 20 years doing the convention circuit, campaigning for more Ghostbusters things, campaigning for the... And he's... Him and... And they've just never given him the time of day. I've always felt very bad for Ernie Hudson and and, and his Ghostbusters. Uh, you know, I think he gives more than he ever gets from them. It always bugs me in Ghostbusters 2 because, yeah, he disappears from the courtroom scene. But he is actually a bigger presence elsewhere in the movie. Like like particularly when they go underground and, yeah. and like the, the whole thing with the ghost train. You know, he is much more present. I think that was the old New York Central, City of Albany. Derailed in nineteen twenty, killed hundreds of people. Did you catch the number on the locomotive? Sorry. I missed it. And the stupid thing is, he is key to that team because he's the everyman. Yeah, he's the guy that like grounds the science. Uh, the other voice actors as they were auditioned were told not to impersonate the voices from the movie, Maurice LaMarche. He, he couldn't get it out of his head. He, I've, I've actually seen him talk about it in person and on internet, and he's just like, I, I couldn't... When I think of Egon Spengler, which is a part I was reading for, all I could think of was 
was Harold Ramis. He said, stay away from impressions. Whatever you do, no impressions, okay? My background was stand-up comedy and as an impressionist. Uh, so I sat there going, you know, it's like telling me, you know, telling, telling me not to breathe, uh, you know, to not do an impression. And I could not see any other way to do Egon except for doing Ramus. And so he did a voice that was, it's very, it's, it's a bit more modified. It's got a little bit of Orson Welles, which is another voice he does incredibly. But it is identifiably Egon. And he walked away from the audition going, bollocks that. Yeah, because I, I did a Harold Ramis impersonation. Got the job. Because realistically, Egon is Egon. And I think even the producer said, well, we've probably got to have at least one of them that sounds like the guy from the movie. It also made sense to cast uh, Maurice. I mean, he was relatively new in his career at this point. Like, he is a, a well-established voice, you know, now. Like, I mean, people will know the name of uh, Maurice LaMarche. But like at this point, he's very early in his career. But it made sense to hire him and Frank Welker because with those guys, you don't just get one voice. You get 10 voices. And so like if you've got extra characters within the an episode, it's like, well, Frank can do one of those voices and Maurice can do one of those voices. And they kind of talk about on the, the time life thing that they could also both do uh, incredible Lorenzo music impersonations. If anybody couldn't make it, we all got good enough for doing each other's voices that once in a while we'd throw, there was one, for instance, one time Lorenzo couldn't make it. So we all took turns playing Lorenzo. And I think Frank Welker did the best Lorenzo, but I came in second and that was okay. So they wouldn't read, um, uh, well, they wouldn't record any of Venkman's lines, but they could read his lines and that'd be a good way for them to to um, uh, rehearse the scenes. I mean, Frank Welker, I will say, it's lovely to have him in this being a person because he's the voice of Ray. He's also the voice of Slimer. Numerous ghosts, numerous extras, probably half of the furniture. I wouldn't be surprised to find out if he was also the noise of a proton pack powering up as well. Because as we've said on this podcast before, chances are if you're watching a cartoon, you might be welkered. But you mentioned that Lorenzo Music um, was Peter Venkman, of course, best known as the voice of Garfield. He was the voice of Venkman for the first two seasons until focus groups or market research um, had him replaced with Dave Coulier for seasons three to seven. And the reason is, is because apparently, allegedly, Bill Murray said, why does my guy sound like Garfield? And it wasn't a buy him. It was a alleged question. Studio went get rid of him. Lorenzo Music was my first choice because he really gave it a kind of low-key, dry quality that you would get out of a Bill Murray take. One of the big problems with Lorenzo was he'd been around quite a bit. So he started to hear his voice a lot in commercials and the rest, and that bothered Ivan a bit. And Bill Murray just come down one day and said, why don't you use my voice? He said, I can't do the show, but have someone do me. And immediately, that's why we changed it. And while it is very clear to any of us that have seen Garfield the cartoon, that yes, Peter Venkman sounds just like Garfield. Garfield as a cap is lazy. He is irresponsible. And he is primarily concerned for himself. Peter Venkman, as a character, is lazy, is irresponsible, and is primarily concerned for himself. The voice it, it's it, a it's, it's so a great perfect. Bit. You know, especially because they did they sexed up Venkman a bit. Oh yeah, he's the he is the most handsome member of this group. Like easily, he's the most handsome member of the four. And he knows it because you know what? It may be a kids' cartoon. He's horn dogging <laughs> his way around this series. <laughs> Ernie Hudson lost his uh, role to Arsenio Hall. 
And Laura Summer was Janine Melnitz in the first couple of seasons before being replaced in seasons three to seven with Kath Susie. Now, a number of people were replaced in seasons three to seven. Characters were redesigned. You mentioned them earlier, Luke. What are you going to tell us about Q5? So, okay. So when they did the 13 episodes and they did the uh, syndicated 65, ABC were already gearing up to do the next 13, which would be uh, series three. And the way that J. Michael Straczynski puts it... We had the number one show in Saturday morning. We were getting killer ratings, killer reviews. Everyone loved us. So having the most successful show on the air, it therefore behooves the network to try and fix it. They went out and hired consultants to come in and give us guidance on what kids want to see in network television shows. And the way that they decided to fix it, and like this is this is commonplace within Hollywood anyway, like the, uh, David Hughes' book, Tales from Development Hell, has got this amazing quote on the back of it, which is just that, this script is perfect, who can we get to rewrite it? Like that is the Hollywood mantra whenever they get a script in that they like is, okay, instantly, who can we get to rewrite this script, even though it's already kind of set in stone already. So they brought in a group of uh, graduates, basically. They had some degrees and they were called, it was Q5, it was this uh, consultancy company that came in. And they came in and they gave notes on how to improve the real Ghostbusters. And JMS and Joe Medic, uh, the, the producer on the show and the, and the lead writer, were just like, cool, what evidence do you have to back up these claims? And as it turns out, they hadn't done any evidence. They hadn't They hadn't done any research into it. They hadn't done any focus groups. They basically just came in there with an idea of what a kid's cartoon should be and told the people who were making the number one kid's cartoon in America how to change their show. And that is things like, the show needs kids in it. So we've got the junior Ghostbusters. Janine needs to be, and I quote, generally less harsh and slutty. That was the way that they sort of looked at Janine. She needed to be a more maternal figure to the Ghostbusters. And the the other one that, that JMS talks about, and I've got a clip of it here, which is basically... Well, we think that the characters should all have clearly defined roles. Think of it as a body. At Peter, it's the mouth. Okay, I can buy that one. Ray, the mechanic, is the hands. All right, I'm okay with that one too. Egon is the brains. Perfect. I got no problem with that. Winston, our only black character, was the driver. Hang on. Hold the bus a second. So these guys, the white guys, have all the really smart roles and making the one black guy into the driver? Show me a research on that one. Which, of course, they couldn't provide. Now, I absolutely agree that each Ghostbuster has its role. And they got it half right. Because oh, Egon's yeah. the brain. Those first three are right. I would, I would go with the line from the movie because, you know, Egon definitely the brain, Peter the mouth, raised the heart. The heart, yeah. But he's also the mechanic. So like, you, I, I get why they were saying the hands, but yeah, he is also the heart of the Ghostbusters. But in the real Ghostbusters, I would say Winston is also the hand. Because mm. particularly as the show goes on, he does get more involved, not in the crazy science shit, but in like Ecto-1 and stuff like that. He does get his doctorate in the show, though. He does become a, a legit doctor in uh, the real Ghostbusters. They also give him more to do in the Ghostbusters video game, which is out there in a remastered form. I do recommend it. If you want an original cast sequel, it's literally the best you're going to get. I wish Bill Murray had just put a bit more <sighs> open to it. He's phoning it in. Everyone yeah. else is giving 
100%. It's funny as well, because Bill Murray tells the story that, like, he was surprised at how much he enjoys doing that. Like, because, like, Bill Murray has tried... He's basically Harrison Ford and Star Wars. He's basically just been trying to escape Ghostbusters uh, for his career, which is why we didn't get Ghostbusters 3. And, you know, he eventually came in to do this. And he was telling Letterman that, like, oh, man, I actually had way more fun doing the Ghostbusters video game than I thought I was going to do. That when I left the recording studio, I found myself singing the theme song. I found myself just singing the Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters theme song. And I walked past someone who was just like, man, let it go. And that that's it. <laughs> one last note on Q5, and it is to do with Janine. And it's one of my favorite notes they had about her. Her glasses. Janine's completely wrong. Why is she completely wrong? First off, she needs to be more nurturing. She needs to be more of a mother character, a mother to the boys who are there at the firehouse. Put her in more dress-like outfits, skirts and blouses, not pants. Make her more nurturing looking. Change her glasses because children, they said, are frightened by sharp objects. They should therefore be round glasses, not pointed glasses. As a former kid, guess what? I fucking loved sharp objects. It was everyone else that was scared of me having sharp objects. Absolutely, yeah. Like the the Janine, the the, the fake Janine um, that we get, uh, and, and there's nothing against Kath Susie because Kath Susie just does what she is told to do. It, it's actually it sucks for Laura Summers as well because Laura Summers, when she auditioned to play Janine. She didn't do a, a, a New York accent. She doesn't do the accent that Janine has in the eventual show. She just did like her normal voice, which is quite like, you know, a, a nice and sweet voice. They didn't have me do the New York accent. I just talked as myself. It was just very sweet. And then um, a few weeks later, I got the job. And then the first day of shooting, they said to me, um, of recording, can you do a New York accent? And I said, can I do a New York accent? <laughs> Coming from Queens, of course. So... Laura Summers could have actually done the new version of Janine, but they're like, well, we've got to recast her, so we're going to get Kath uh, Susie in instead. And, and it just the, the, the second iteration of Janine is absolutely awful. Really, really horrible. Like, it takes out all of the good character, because Janine is one of the best characters in the real Ghostbusters. She's so, so cool. My first animated crush. The second iteration of her is, is yeah, it's not, not good. And the, the same with Dave Coulier who like you know they didn't want people doing impersonations of the cast like the, the the movie cast but they basically got dave coulier to do his okay bill murray impression and it's just not as good it's not as good as lorenzo music's magic it also doesn't fit the look if they made the character look like bill murray maybe it would work but as we've just said this is sexy venkman and by that i mean yeah. conventionally sexy venkman because original venkman is unconventionally attractive he's the romantic lead you can see where dave coulier sucks uh in his peter venkman as well when they redid some of the syndicated episodes oh fucking hell i've forgotten about that don't say it egon let me we're in trouble oh boy are we in trouble don't say it egon let me we're in trouble oh boy are we in trouble yeah, they got Coulier to re-record like the lines, and Laura um, uh, and Kat Susie to re-record some of Laura Summers' lines, and it does not fit. Like he does, he's just not as good at doing Bankman as Lorenzo Music was. I think Lorenzo Music for me is the perfect audio Peter Bankman. A last note on Lorenzo Music, sadly no longer with us, is eventually turnaround was fair play because Garfield the movie. Who's voicing Garfield? It's Bill Murray doing a Lorenzo Music impersonation. <laughs> 
I, I wonder if did Bill Murray sign up for those couple of films just going, yeah, this will be funny. Someone will laugh yeah. at it. Like, not I the film, it. but at the fact that I'm playing a guy who played me. Kind of, yeah. Some of the weird shit that Bill Murray does, both professionally and personally, it doesn't seem unfeasible. But yeah, so season three, lots of stuff changed. Season four, they did away with the original title sequence and it became Slimer and the real Ghostbusters because that's where the marketing money was, kids. Well, that's also what Q5 wanted. Like uh, J. Michael Straczynski's series Bible of the show was to use Slimer sparingly. It was like a less of Slimer is a lot more. Like use him in a handful of scenes. Slimer should be more of a character. He should have more of a leading role on the show because kids like that kind of thing. What, what's your homework on that? Can I see your, your, your data? Can I see your research on, on Slimer? And they, of course, didn't have any. They were just speaking extemporaneously, but somehow it now became Slimer and, and the real Ghostbusters. My theory on Slimer was that a little Slimer goes a long way. So I tried to always say, use him minimally to good effect, not maximally no effect. If everything is funny, nothing is funny. If everything is scary, nothing is scary. If the show was all Slimer, it's nothing. So when they brought Slimer to the foreground and made it Slimer and the real Ghostbusters, the ratings dropped and the attention dropped. The movie wasn't called Slimer, and I think by putting him in front of it, it lost a lot of the, the adult audience that had shown up for the original series. And in a way, I kind of that that's one of the few things that Q5 suggested that I kind of buy into, because I was a kid watching this show, and I did like Slimer. With that said, I wouldn't have wanted Snarf taking over Lion-O. And when you get to the, the towards the end of of Ghostbusters it is the Slimer show and the Ghostbusters are playing second fiddle to him there are episodes where it feels like they're barely like advancing the plot and it is just Slimer doing his Slimer things and yeah I mean those episodes aren't particularly good either because I I agree with JMS that less of Slimer is more and just one last comment on JMS because the episode we're covering is a JMS episode he contributed like over 50 hours of material towards the real Ghostbusters. He provided episodes for, I think, uh, all seasons except season four and season seven, if I remember correctly. Because he quit the show. Basically, after Q5 came on, he quit the show because he he didn't agree with, with what they had to say. He didn't agree with the change to Janine. You know, he called them sexist and racist in his sort of like reply to, uh, to the changes that, that we needed to make. And he quit the show and they begged him to come back because all of the Q5 stuff blew up in their face and the ratings completely tanked for Series 3. Hopefully Q5 are long dead, buried and turned into firelighters at this point because <laughs> they ruined a beautiful thing. I, I wonder if we'd have still had Lorenzo because, you know, if, if we'd have still had the Bill Murray incident. But I agree that, like, I, I was thinking about this this earlier when I, I was making dinner that, you know, we got the, the syndication, the 65 syndication episodes and the, the 13 episode Series 1. And that's, you know, after that, we, we get the, the, the Q5 era. Ghostbusters as a fad was always going to end. We got nearly 200 episodes of the real Ghostbusters. As you say, you cannot keep up that level of quality for, for nearly 200 episodes. Look at The Simpsons. But would it have at least kept that same tone? Or would it ABC still would have got those cold feet? 
because ABC couldn't change the syndication episodes. They couldn't change that once they'd already been done because they weren't looking in on them. So in the syndication episode, you got references to the Necronomicon. But when you get into ABC now control things and they're now got more hands on this, JMS submits a script that references the Necronomicon and they say, you can't fe- you can't talk about that. That's a satanic book. Um, and you can't feature that. And JMS would be like, but it's not real. And they were like, no, no, but it, it is a real book. And he his argument was like, okay, show me it then. Show me where I can go and read the real Necronomicon. And they couldn't. They were just like, it's a real book. Change it. So they changed it to, and I think in the in the final episode, it is the nameless book. My PKE meter said something very powerful was once in here. What was it? It was a thing called the nameless book. It must have had a name. No, that's what it was called, the nameless book. Wow. These guys did a Cthulhu story. Mm. You know, they they got they got that past ABC. I mean, they had to make some changes because of the Lovecraft estate, but they weren't afraid of doing stuff that was really scary. And and it was cool. It was as I said earlier, it was a show with peril. They had some amazing talent. Go go and check this series out. You must have ordered. I can't yeah. I'd be amazed if anyone listening to this hasn't at some point seen a couple of episodes of the real Ghostbusters. If you haven't, do yourself a favor. Check out the real Ghostbusters. Don't play any of the real Ghostbusters games. They're all shit. Oh yeah, they are not good at all. Yeah, the the, the, the other thing about JMS, I think if I was going to say, if you're going to check out one of the later episodes, the one I would recommend is Janine, You've Changed. Um, which is it's a JMS episode when he came back because one of his requests was I want to change Janine back and it is essentially about why Janine changed and they even reference like the Q5 notes that they were given like they literally like the script contains the Q5 notes about Janine and Janine is saying them it's a it's a wild wild episode in terms of like as a kid you would not have known this but like as adults they were basically like JMS in particular was just getting frustrations off his chest. And what I, one of the things I love about J. Michael Straczynski is because he's done so much, you know, he's done He-Man, he's done this, he's, Babylon, he's creator of Babylon 5, he's got fuck you money. So basically he can go on do interviews where he can just tear apart networks and tear apart studios that he doesn't like and just be completely honest about it because he's got fuck you money, it doesn't matter. Right. Sorry. We're at the firehouse. <laughs> and, and do you know what that is? Like, that is, I would say, a potted history of, of the real Ghostbusters. Like, we could have, like, we didn't even get into sort of like the animation side of things. But I suppose we could talk about that as we get into the episode itself. Because, man, one of the things that I absolutely adore about this show is just how good it looks. Like, it is. Deke had a very good relationship with, with uh, TMS and, you know, that which would stem back from Inspector Gadget. So they were able to get the best animators. They even opened up their own animation studio, essentially, so they could do work with TMS and Toei over in Japan. Uh, and they, it was KK Deek, I think, that was the, the animation studio that they opened. And you look at the credits for this show, it's all Japanese names. Outside of the cast and the writers and directors, it is all Japanese names because this show has got... It, it's so animated. Like, I would argue that this is probably... The most people listening to this, this is your first anime. It's it, it's amazing as well when you look back at it as well because like from about eighty three through to eighty six, Deke could afford to use um, TMS. By the nineties, Disney could afford to use TMS. 
by 93, only Steven Spielberg could afford to use uh, TMS. And even then, it was really he could justify the expense of getting TMS in to do the animation because they, they upped their rates because quite rightly so, they were putting out the best animation. So with Spielberg, it was like, right, well, I can only get you to do either a handful of episodes or a straight to movie, uh, straight to DVD movie. So can you do like the joke, uh, the uh, the Mask of the Phantasm? Could you do Wacko's World or, you know, Summer Vacation? That That's how expensive TMS got by the time we got into the 90s. In the 80s, they were quite game to do all this sort of stuff. So the show opens with the Ghostbusters intro. It's one that like I can recount the entire running of it off the top of my head. We've got a cover of Bay Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Uh, all the um, all the extra music in this show, by the way, is com- is composed uh, primarily by Haim Saban and Shuki Levy. Um, others came in later. There's a style here which is very familiar to anyone familiar with this era of animation. Yes, and before you ask, yes, that is the Haim Saban, as in like the Power Rangers Haim Saban. Yeah, he's a multi-talented guy, isn't he? Just. Um, and you probably have heard some of his music by this point because thankfully via Time Life DVDs and clever people on the internet, we're able to drop in some of that incidental music in the background. Uh, they, they had a limited library of music, but bloody hell, it worked. It was good. I was listening to a podcast that was talking about, it's the What A Cartoon podcast where as some of my like sort of um, additional research came from from this because I listened to it a couple of years ago. Bob Mackey talks about on that is that, you know, as you're a kid, when your brain is sort of like, it's growing and it's becoming the sponge where like information is just being stuck in there i think one of those things that stuck in there with me is the music from the real ghostbusters because i can not watch an episode for five years but i will still be able to hear very clearly all of the incidental music in this show whether it's the spooky theme whether it's the happy theme whether it's the we've wrapped this all up folks theme it's all of the incidental music is there in my head and as strong as the score was in the movie, because you know Elmer Bernstein's score to Ghostbusters is as iconic as anything else in that film, and also as iconic as the score to the real Ghostbusters. But there are definitely hints, whether deliberate or not, that take me back to the movie. You mentioned the spooky theme, and it opens with a single eerie note. And that takes me right back to the note from the pre-title sequence in Ghostbusters, that just a single eerie note as the book Loads hmm. past behind the librarian. It, it says a lot for the strength of the composition for real Ghostbusters that it's actually able to occupy a separate part of my brain. Because when I think Ghostbusters, the piece of music and that just comes to my head, it's not even Ray Park Jr. It's dun 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 yep. Da, 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 da. When I went, uh, when I went to New York, for my, my Kate took me to New York for my thirtieth birthday, and I I made us a Ghostbusters tour because fun fact, you people, there isn't a Ghostbusters tour in New York. There isn't a walking tour, so I just made one myself. I just found all the locations, put it all out, and I was like, Kate, we've got a very big walking day ahead of us because we're going to all of the locations that I found that are still here in New York. Some of them aren't there anymore, like the the, the restaurants. That oh, tapping on the green. Yeah, it's that that's gone. But you know, like you know, Dana Barrett's apartment, the firehouse, all all of the locations and stuff. It's a Statue of Liberty still there. That is still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I don't think the Nez Pad is still there. I think they may have taken the Nez Pad out of it. We haven't even got past the title sequence yet. I'm sorry, but one of my favourite deleted jokes from Ghostbusters Two 
is the the bit you see briefly at the end, which is the thank you Ghostbusters, and it shows Lady Liberty kind of back on the island. If you go by the novelization, I think some early versions of the script, one of them was meant to lean to the other and go, she holding the book in the right hand? The idea <laughs> that she went back and they'd fucked it and now Lady Liberty was back to front. <laughs> that was going to be my question to you before we get into the show. What is your favourite line from Ghostbusters? Listen, you smell something. Listen, you smell something. That was exactly the one that I gave was listen, do you smell something? Or my other favourite is where do these stairs go? They go up. They go up. Hey, where do these stairs go? They go up. Which I remember they apparently had a fight on set because they all wanted to give that line to each other because it was such a good line. It's so funny. The other one that makes me laugh every time, it's less of a line, but it's do Ray Egon, a bit from Ghostbusters. It's the look that Ramus gives afterwards. <laughs> the sort of knowing smile of like, Yes, I did it. And it's a look that Venkman gives him as well. Oh, man. <laughs> Luke, it's one hour and 32 minutes. We've got to get to the firehouse. Hello? Anyone there? Back here! Oh, you must be Janine Melnitz. Well, if I must, I must. Now, all things considered, I'd rather be Meryl Streep. But then, wouldn't we all? So title sequence goes by. By the way, a bunch of the pilot reel stuff is reused and reanimated for this because a lot of what went into that three-minute pitch reel was recycled for this, including the final bus sequence, which includes Stay Puff and a whole bunch of ghosts, most of which we never see. They're too nicely animated. They're really good designs. We get some great design ghosts in the show, but these these are really kind of they're great design. And we open on the firehouse. And we've got... Cynthia Crawford. Cynthia yeah. Crawford, eh? <laughs> yeah. Making her second appearance um, in this show um, as a reporter. She was in the episode uh, When Halloween Was Forever, uh, which was earlier in the show. But yeah, but it's... It, it, do you know what? When I wrote down Cynthia Crawford, I did have to sort of like stop myself being like, that is the, the model's name, isn't it? And I Google was like, oh, no, 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 no. It just sounds very similar. And I just got myself confused, which was clearly the intention. But she's reporting for UBN News. She arrives at the firehouse and she's hoping to do a pre-interview with Peter for a segment on the history of the Ghostbusters. I'm Cynthia Crawford with UBN News. I'm here to interview Dr. Peter Venkman. Oh, of course. He's waiting for you upstairs. This is the episode that is a direct sequel to the first movie. Yeah, it's there to explain the reasons why Slimer is in the firehouse. It's there to explain why they're wearing different jumpsuits. I... I it's it's a brilliant episode for that reason, yeah, as, as a perfect sequel or, you know, yeah, follow up rather than sort of sequel because Ghostbusters 2 is the sequel. But she goes into the firehouse, she introduces herself to Janine and Janine goes up, uh, Peter's upstairs, but you, you, you can't go up there. And also introduces a running gag, which is where Cynthia goes to Janine, you must be Janine Melnit. And Janine's like, well, if I must, must I, I must, must, but I'd rather be Meryl Streep. There's a joke that is clearly written not the kids, because most yeah. seven-year-olds do not give a shit who Meryl Streep is. I'm sorry, but you can't go up there. But you just said. I know what I said, but you can't go up there. 30, 29, 28. Look, I don't know what your game is, but I'm a reporter. I have an interview with Dr. Venkman, and I'm going up there, all right? 13, 12, 11, 10. Are you listening to a word I'm saying? Four, three, two, one. Yeah. Now you can go upstairs. 
yeah, Cynthia tries to go upstairs and Janine's like, I can't let you go up there. Cynthia gets proper, like, journalistic fury of, I am a journalist and I have freedom and Second Amendment and... Argh! And all this, while this is going on, Janine's just counting down. And I love that Janine knows what's going on. And as the hum builds up, we know what's going on. And the only one that's clueless is the journalist. It's nice to have the audience in on this joke. Yeah. I just, and I love Janine, man. Like, it's she's... This is it. Like, as you say, like, we were talking off, off mic that this could have been, like, the first episode of uh, The Real Ghostbusters. And it's actually a really good introduction to Janine, like this, the, the the cartoon version of Janine and how she operates within this universe of the Ghostbusters. That Q5 research said they needed to make her more of a mother. They didn't because she's already the boss. Yeah. Right. In many, in many, many senses. You know, she's a, she's less the mother, more the matron. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, the Bob Mackey I mentioned earlier from What a Cartoon, uh, he was talking about Janine. He was like, yeah. With real Ghostbusters, I wanted Peter Venkman to be my dad, and I wanted Janine Milnes to be my wife. Like, I didn't need her to be my mum. Nice one, Egon. I think you took out most of Bayonne with that one. Would you like to try for the Bronx this time? Hey, I was born in the Bronx. I'd say that was a good enough reason, wouldn't you? Ouch! You know, I wish you guys would figure out what this thing's supposed to be. If I'm going to be disintegrated, I'd at least like to know by what. Hello? Uh, hi. I- I'm Cynthia Crawford with UBN News. You must be Dr. Peter Venkman. Well, if I must, I must. But I'd much rather be... If you don't mind, I've already driven off that bridge once already. Uh, can we go somewhere and talk? Sorry, gentlemen, but my public calls. Perhaps we can continue this later. Ta. It's such sharp dialogue. And also we get a little bit of Ghostbusters history in this scene because the machine was something that Egon and Ray were working on. And Peter's like, nice going. Maybe next time you can take out the Bronx. And Ray's like, hey, I was born in the Bronx. (laughs) So today we learned, Luke, Ray was born in the Bronx. Dan Aykroyd, obviously, you know, he's playing a New York character in in Ghostbusters, but cannot help that canadian niceness just sort of like just flow through him particularly at the end of the movie when he's talking it goes man it smells like burnt dog hair around here and then he just goes oh venkman i'm sorry that look that venkman gives him when he says that about the barbecued dog hair i could wilt an evergreen that was just so, so withering and then in third grade i got in a fight with this guy named rick big guy big muscles brains of a trout dr venkman When I said I wanted to do a pre-interview for a segment on the history of the Ghostbusters, this isn't quite what I had in mind. I mean, there's so much the public doesn't know about you. What you do in your spare time, where you came from. Not much to say. Raise homes in the Bronx. Make that was in the Bronx. (gasps) Oh, no! And and this must be Slimer. Skip it, Slimer. She's heard it. Huh. We also get our first bit of Slimer in this episode as well, uh, where so Slimer comes in and also does the if I must, I must line as Skip it, Slimer. She's already heard it. The machine explodes again, and Pete then refers to the Bronx in the past tense, which, <laughs> yeah. man, this writing's too good for a kid's cartoon at this point. Yeah, which is, you know, big, begs the question, you know, our journalist's first question, if you're the Ghostbusters... Why are you hanging out with a ghost? And 
we flash back to the end of the first movie, essentially, with them returning back to the firehouse after beating Zul. The roof's exploded. They're in the tan jumpsuit. They're covered in the marshmallow. And you're like, oh, I love this. I love this so much. You know, there was a big hole blown in the roof in the movie as the Ecto containment unit was shut down by Dickless there. But this is the damage from that then taken up to the level they metered out onto the rooftop temple because there's about half of the firehouse still standing. This is beyond a unique fixer-upper opportunity. This yeah. is this is knock it down and build some luxury flats. This, this place is knackered. I was going to say, it, it needs to be condemned at that point. Like, it's, it's funny as well because like later on when they're just like yeah we know uh, we spent our time rebuilding the firehouse i'm like how did you see how much of it was blown off you're not gonna fix that with some wooden gaffer tape no two ways about it this place is a mess hey no problem we'll just fix the place up better than before right oh yeah right what sure piece of cake the second order of business is to rebuild the containment grid so we'll have some place to put the ghosts Whoa. this time i think i'll make it bigger okay egon i'll bite what's the first thing we have to do get rid of our uniforms they absorbed a frightening amount of psychokinetic energy during our battle with gozer they'll have to be destroyed but yeah they show them returning and egon is immediately like these uniforms we need to get rid of these uniforms they're full of psychokinetic energy and the thing is this isn't just like plot device for this episode it's totally a plot device for this episode but the idea of objects or inanimate objects of absorbing psychokinetic energy is not unique to mm. ghostbusters or to this amityville and particularly the series of movies they did around the cursed objects the clock the dollhouse so on and so forth it's all about inanimate objects absorbing like paranormal energy and i i i probably dug it then it probably went over my head then but watching it now i'm like that's pretty cool thankfully their new uniforms have arrived no not the cool black ones from ghostbusters 2 these are the real ghostbusters uniforms because apparently in addition to janine they've also employed a marketing agent at some point during <laughs> the tail end of the first movie to give them nice color-coordinated suits. Um, when I did my first uh, Ghostbusters cosplay outfit, uh, I did mine based on Venkman's real Ghostbusters suits. I got the brown and I had some uh, green put into the um, the collar uh, so I could get the, the placements on and everything because I, as, as much as I love the iconic look of the, the Ghostbusters tan suits in the movie, as I said at the start of this episode, this was my introduction to the Ghostbusters. Right here, in fact. I've got, this was my wedding gift from my parents. These are my real Ghostbusters toys that from my, uh, from my youth that my dad uh, put into this lovely little uh, display box. Um, and they're all posed and they've got their proton packs with all the accessories because I still have those. Uh, and yeah, it, it's so nice. It's, you can see all the ones I play with because they are worn to fuck as well. Peter's now got a hairline that matches uh, Bill Murray's. Yeah, and that was my second Egon as well because the, the head fell off my original one. Um, and then my, my dad went out and he bought a new one for me. I also went through three X01s. My mum re constantly reminds me because I played with it too much. You went through more than the actual Ghostbusters did. <laughs> I suggest you all change as quickly as possible. The sooner we're away from the PKE contamination, the better. That was where all the trouble started. We're not entirely sure what happened next, but here's what we pieced together. We then do get a montage of them rebuilding the firehouse with lots of planks of wood and nails because that's all you need to rebuild a brick and mortar structure but i do like that one of the clips in the montage is janine using a power saw 
<laughs> I also like as well that they explained that why the containment grid is bigger than the one that's in the movie. Because like in the movie, it's just this tiny red box that's that's on the uh, on the wall. The cartoon version is this ginormous, like big red monstrosity thing, most likely because that's a better toy to sell. Um, but you know, Egon says like we need to have a bigger containment grid because the other one was, and they say it in the first movie as well. It's getting crowded in there, so I, I like that they've given us you know a nice storyline reason for this. And also peppered throughout this is the very nice sort of running joke for Peter Venkman is just like we never figured out how uh, the, 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 the the they didn't get destroyed. Also, I've got to assume that when the containment unit blew, it lowered the basement floor by a good 15 feet because it was a small basement in the movie <laughs> whereas this thing's like the bloody bat cave i know yeah you can barely get a twinkie in the uh, the basement that's in the the movie but this one like you get a ju- now that's a big twinkie that could get inside there you could get enough twinkies to see out 2020 and 2021 transtator check field generator check ionization decay meter check Plasmatic refractor, anti-ectoplasm destruct mechanism, bipolar adjuster. Check, check, and check. Transwarp drive. Check. Aha! Caught you. We don't have a transwarp drive. If we don't have one, then it can't malfunction. If it's not malfunctioning, then nothing's wrong. And if nothing's wrong, then it checks, right? I'm not going to talk to you again for at least a week. It's not good for me. But yeah, um, they're going through the checklist and Venkman is doing no due diligence. He's just going check, check. Egon drops in a Star Trek reference with the transwarp drive. And Peter's like, check. Aha. We don't have one of those. (laughs) Well, if we don't have one, it can't have gone wrong. Therefore, there's nothing wrong. Therefore, check. (laughs) And Egon takes the very wise decision of not talking to peter anymore <laughs> exactly i was like okay i'm done with this conversation now if that's how you're going to be but you do need to destroy these suits which peter doesn't do which, which is unfortunate because there's actually a crack in the containment field and the uniforms are starting to absorb some of that energy there's seepage luke seepage is a it's a problem after the firehouse is rebuilt they sit down to a lavish meal turns out ray is a bit of a handy-dandy cook. Gentlemen, Janine, a toast. To our first night back in the firehouse. To the firehouse! To the firehouse! Food! So, who wants stuffing? I do like this because it kind of mirrored the meal they have in Ghostbusters when they go to our first customer. Yeah, represents the last of the petty cash. <laughs> Chew your food. Eat slowly. <laughs> yeah. But at this point, we get... I guess our first introduction to Onion Head, because he's not Slimer yet. This is the Green Ghost. After the first Ghostbusters, he was last seen flying at the camera at the end of the first movie as they drove off into the sunset. And he's kind of just hanging around, maybe spying on them a bit, which is a bit creepy now that I think of it. But he's mainly interested in food. And Egon, because he's never without his PKE meter, knows what's up. And as much as I love the Iona shoe polisher PKE meter, which I do, I love the real Ghostbusters redesign. It's completely impractical in a real world situation, as I've seen by the various replicas people have made of it. But I love the whole pop up and two red antennas 
flinging out oh, the top. I, I I mean, I was a bit of a... Oh, I don't want to say I was a spoiled kid, but I had a lot of real Ghostbusters merchandise. Like, I had all of the toys. I had all of the ghosts. I had all of the variations of the Ghostbusters, like the shocked, scared ones and things like that. They were great. Really good. I had all the like the cars and stuff. I had Ecto 1, 2, and 3. I was very lucky. I had the firehouse you know, and all the, the ghosts and stuff. But I also had the, the costume bits and pieces. So, like, I had the proton pack. I had the PKE meter. I also had the, uh, the I can't remember what it was called now, but it was another version of a proton pack. It was basically just a foam shooter. It was also really cool. But like that blue PKE meter was an essential part of my uh, real Ghostbusters cosplay because I needed something to, to clip on there so it could really complete the look. I made a lot of my own kind of like bops. I made my own proton pack, backpack at least. I made my own trap. I had the uh, projection gun, yeah. the one that had the kind of almost Viewmaster type disc and you could project different ghosts onto the wall with one button and then zap them. And by zap them, I mean make a really annoying noise <laughs> with the other. But it was great because it actually gave me a proton pack with light and sound, which if I remember correctly, the costume one didn't do that, but it did have a, a pool noodle stuck yeah, out of the front. Yeah, really. Like, so you would stick that in and then again you would press fire and it would make a very annoying noise because it was just essentially just metal rattling around within plastic to, to spin the pool noodle around. But Egon works out there's something there. They all turn to follow and that's when they see the green ghost. What the heck is that? Can't be the plumbing. I just fixed it. Gentlemen, something's here and it's right over there. It's him! It's the one who slimed me at the hotel! Get him! I love uh, Peter saying, like, hey, that's the guy that slimed me back at the hotel. Continuity, I do <laughs> like it in a cartoon. <laughs> and, they, and they kind of give a reason as to why Slimer is here, because all of the other ghosts escaped the containment field when it was blown up by Dickless. But Janine suggests that, well, Slimer's probably lonely, and he's just here because he needs a friend. Yeah, you were the first guys that paid attention to him. It's like, well, I suppose by, you know, trapping him with unlicensed nuclear accelerators and chasing him around a hotel. It, it's a little bit of revisionist history because, you know, he was a menace in the first movie. And this is kind of making him a more sympathetic character. A bit of business I do like is he obviously goes after the food before they start chasing him. And he makes that mistake that he makes in the first movie, which is he doesn't always twig that just because he's holding or moving an object, it's not necessarily going to go through the wall with him because yeah. he goes through the firehouse door and it, it just leaves the food behind. Drops the food behind him, yeah. And he comes back in and grabs it and that's when things go awry and we get the Ghostbusters action music coming up. We're all getting their proton packs out, which either damages things or doesn't, depending on how much animation budget they've got left. Because later in the episode, those things total the Ecto-1. <laughs> yeah. But right now, wood is impervious apparently yeah it, it depends on how much charge is in there or how high they've got it set up i guess yeah sure we'll, we'll go with that <laughs> we'll go with that <laughs> but egon wants to keep him because he wants to you know do scientific studies on him and they kind of like go through sort of like the, the how the four of them interacted with uh with slimer as he he sort of you know keeps cropping up and it is egon wants to talk to him and do scientific studies so slimer slimes him ray and winston are fixing the car but winston gets distracted so he has to go and make tea and he helps Ray. Or at least he tries to help Ray anyway. He wants a screwdriver and he's like, um, 
hand you this, which is a wrench. And it's like, hang on, this isn't a wrench. And this, and where we get the name Slimer. And Ed's raised the one who gives him the name. Primarily to annoy Peter. See, I told you, he tried to sneak up on me. Okay, where is he? Where'd he go? Where'd who go, Peter? You know, the green guy, the little spud, the, uh, whatever he is. Who? What? Where? Never mind, just keep your eyes open. That thing's a menace. You know, Peter's right. We need to give you a name. Just to annoy Peter, what say we call you Slimer? <laughs> and he tries to, like, he, he, like, treats him like a dog, tries to get him to play fetch, essentially, and that's how he interacts with Peter for the first time. We get our first the little spud. He's a little friend, because Peter is, in the even in the cartoon, he picks on Ray. He picks on all of them. It's part of his character trait. They couldn't, if they'd eliminated that, it wouldn't have even been recognisable as Bankman. He chases out and's like, where is he? Where is he? And Ray's like, where's who? <laughs> and Ray's still under the car. And then after Peter gives up and goes away, they cut to under the car. And that's when Ray's like, tee hee and Sliver's next to him. It's, it's a beautiful character moment. Yeah. I mean, Ray's my favourite character in Ghostbusters, uh, the movie. And although he's not my favourite character in the real Ghostbusters, because that's 100% Venkman, I do love Ray in this cartoon because he is, he's so he's so lovable like he's so lovely and nice and it, it makes me a bit sad that and we, we didn't mention this in our sort of preamble stuff that dan Aykroyd's real only quote about the real ghostbusters is i'm definitely the fat one i know that because that's how they designed him to be sort of like you know the chunkier of the lot and it makes me sad a little bit that that's how dan Aykroyd sees this character of ray because actually the character of ray that is so very close to the dan Aykroyd character within the movie Dan wasn't that heavy in the movie either. It was a it was a bit of an odd choice. I mean, one thing that Q5 did do, which I think was right, was they slimmed Ray down a bit. Yeah, they basically just gave they, like Jim McDivitt's um, like redesigns were essentially just to make them all look different, so that um, Ray is a bit shorter and he's a bit fatter. Uh, Egon is much taller and much lankier. Like the, the the Egon figure is way taller than the other ones, uh, the other figures that are in the line. Mostly because he's got the hair, got the big blonde pompadour. That adds a good, like, three inches to his character. But in the show, we cut to the night, and while the Ghostbusters sleep, there's still seepage, Luke. Seepage is still an issue down with the containment unit, and those uniforms, they, they start to come to life. It's a really quite chilling moment as they fill out, and at first it's just kind of like wispy energy coming out of the arms, legs, and neck hole. And then the more they walk... Boots, hands, head, spectral versions of the Ghostbusters, but most worryingly, spectral proton pack. Pretty badass. Like, it's so cool. And the, I've got the Ghostbusters board game. It's not very good, but I got it on Kickstarter. I got the all the expansion stuff with it as well. And that does have these Ghostbusters, the spectral versions of the Ghostbusters as uh, ghosts that you can put on the board. And even though it doesn't often recommend you to use them, I will use them because I think they're the cooler ones. They're also brought back, or at least in cover form, at least for the IDW comic. There's a couple of different times when the Ghostbusters either get competitors or um, in one episode, it's ghosts pretending to be Ghostbusters. But this is a proper mirror, mirror universe kind of thing. They are literally the, the, the opposite you know, of them. They're, 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 they're the darker side and they also they want to be there. That's, that's their whole reason for being. I guess it's because it's a cartoon, but the spectral Ghostbusters go upstairs. They 
could have just blasted all four of them in their bed, gone full on like mafia hit job. But no, we're going to wake Ray up. Yeah, they make the decision to wake him up. Realistically makes no sense. Dramatically, that's scary. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why they did it. Peter, cut it out. I'm trying to get some sleep. I mean it, Peter. Cut it. Huh? Oh, guys, I think we've got trouble here. Big, big trouble. What's up to the break? In the constellation called the Tube, several bright blue objects have appeared. Known as NBS or New Blue Smarties, you can see them for a few weeks only. Why they're blue and on view for such a short time, well, only Smarties have the answer. So do look out for them before they disappear. (laughs) When things go weird in your neighborhood, who'll sort it out? Not me, man. Adventure comics that'll spook you good. What they all about? Ghostbusters! I could get to like these spooks, man. There's a real Ghostbusters adventure comic in special packs of... Ghostbusters, ghostly pasta in a delicious tomato sauce. This ghost is history. (laughs) New Ghostbusters love real Ghostbusters. You from Heinz. These Ghostbusters transfers in shreddies and shreddy wheat are well wicked. They really do keep the ghosts away. Every Five Alive drinking junior Ghostbuster should look out. It's Ghostbusting action time again. And as the going gets weird, watch out for all that slime and those spiny But most of all, watch out for the special Five Alive packs featuring a free Ghostbuster hologram. There's five to collect. Ghostbusters 2 has arrived, and Wimpy are really making a meal of it. The Ghostbusters 2 meal box with hamburger, chips, and a slime milkshake, all for $1.99. It's enough for any appetite, and you get a ghost in a can. No, don't open it! The Ghostbusters 2 meal box and ghost in a can, a reality at your local Wimpy now. What a ride. Save six tokens from special packs of Weetabix, and you get these great Crayola crayons and a colouring in poster absolutely free. So why not start collecting today? Oh, make a splash in the art world. Oops. We now return to the real Ghostbusters. Can't we talk this over? Move! Break, and then we come out the outbreak. Essentially, the Ghostbusters have to escape their spectral forms to a fun 80s pop song. Which is part of the real Ghostbusters soundtrack 
there was a tie-in album released which contained a number of songs written primarily for the series and which featured in the series. It's a shrewd bit of marketing, but it's a proper little musical interlude. And back to the proton packs, those proton packs may not damage wood, but by Jingo, they do a number on Ecto-1. They, they do a worse job on Ecto-1 than Goza did because this thing's got broken windows. It, it's never going to pass an MOT in this state. I love the the bit with Janine and Egon because like they they you know sort of protect uh, Janine. Like Janine's like, what the hell's going on? And they, they take it down. The Egon saves her. And then Jenny's like, don't go, stay here with me. And Egon in his, his flat delivery goes, I think I'd better go. Story of my life. We may be a cartoon. And apparently, kids are scared of her sharp glasses, not the fact that she's horny for Spanx. Because she oh, yeah. is back to, she's, this is Ghostbusters 1, Janine. She's hot for the doctor. She certainly is. She wants to know all about his hobbies and interests. I wonder if he plays racquetball. Um, so they work together to to chase off the the, the spectral. <laughs> he wouldn't mind straightening his slinky. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but uh, Egon wants to know, like, because they could like just grab them. But it's like I want to know what we're dealing with before we go out and bust them. Before we go out and get them, we need to know exactly what they are. We need to, and this is where we get more of the like. Peter didn't destroy didn't destroy the uniforms, and it was like. Perhaps, but they were in our old uniforms. How is that possible? They were destroyed, weren't they? It didn't take long for us to figure out what had happened. As I suspected, the uniforms, already filled with ectoplasmic energy from our battle with Gozer, absorbed even more energy from the containment unit. Ectoplasm is like putty. The more you add, the bigger it gets. It was only a matter of time until it, well literally woke up and walked away. But why do they look like us? Whenever you touch something, you leave a mental imprint, like a fingerprint. How'd this mess happen anyway? <laughs> Naturally, we agreed it was nobody's fault. It was just one of those things. I'm blaming it on a lazy ginger cat. <laughs> Aegon explains that ectoplasm is like putty. The more you add, the bigger it gets. And... They've left their like fingerprints, essentially, like their mental fingerprints on their old costume, which is why these spectral forms, A, have uh, grown into ghosts, but also why the ghosts look like them. Naturally, we agreed it was nobody's fault. And we cut to a few days in the future because they don't see them again for a while. And they're out on a normal ghost busting job. It's the sort of ones that are used quite often in this show as either you know opening or linking segments when they're attacked by the spectral Ghostbusters who've been biding their time. And at this point, we actually get a bit of motivation. Okay, ghosties. Ollie Ollie Oxenfree, come on out. Dr. Vinkman prescribes a nice long nap in the containment unit. Whoa! Hey, who's the wise guy? My name is Dr. Peter Vinkman. No way. I'm Dr. Peter Venkman. Got that? This town's only big enough for one Peter Venkman. I agree. So one of us must go. Get out! Why do I say things like that? I always get in trouble. They don't just want to destroy the Ghostbusters. They want to become the Ghostbusters. I don't know if it's they want to be Ghostbusters. Then they just want to... Yeah. Just like they can't have two versions of themselves within this universe that so they just need to destroy the other ones. I don't know if they want to become Ghostbusters. They just need to destroy these lads. 
I mean, I think they specifically say in dialogue they actually want to be there. Mm. I mean, whether that means be Ghostbusters or just build their space. But also, these are telekinetically charged uniforms with, like, ghost packs. Who knows what they want? But we need to know their motivation, Luke. We need to know their motivation. <laughs> what gets them up in the morning? So, yeah, so they kind of, like, attack them. Like, Peter and Peter have a sort of a tete-a-tete. Tete. Winston and uh, Egon have uh, a sort of a bit of a to-do with their spectral versions as well. And Peter uh, picks them up in the, the Ecto-1 and they drive off. And they're driving off and then they realise that they left Ray behind. And it cuts back to Ray, who is huffing and puffing his way down the street while he's being chased by his spectral form. He's getting an unexpected cardio workout, that much is for sure, because also those proton packs are heavy, even just based on the rate of a, of a real one, which, you know, small drop, I've got a real proton pack down in the basement. <laughs> Weighs a good solid 25, 30 plus pounds. I'm not going running in that shit. No way. <laughs> so the problem as I see it is that right now both sides are equal. We have proton packs. They have packs that shoot out very destructive ectoplasm. Yeah. Man, this job was a lot easier when these things didn't shoot back. So how do we defeat things that are armed as we are, who know what we know, who are in fact our doubles? I have two ideas. First, we can try to disarm them, but I don't know if their packs can be removed. The second alternative is tougher. They absorbed our energy to take on our forms. So logically, if we remove that energy, they'll disappear. And there's one final danger to consider. Let me guess. Since these guys are just like us, they might think of the same thing. Exactly. Why do I have the feeling that I'm not going to have any fun in all this? So Egon like tells us all that like they're they're equals. They're not just them. Like they're also like as strong as them. They've got the exact same things. They've got the same weapons essentially. They're shooting just ectoplasms as opposed to the proton streams. I like Winston's line of, um, this job was a lot easier when they didn't shoot back. I also love that they're all eating sandwiches. No real reason. I just love that they're all eating sandwiches in this. I guess that was just so they could have a scene of Ray feeding Slimer food, right? Under the table, like yeah, a dog. like a dog, yeah. Keep in mind, Slimer used to be a human. Yeah, at one point, yeah. Ray is treating him like a dog. <laughs> Slimer is buying into all of it, though. He, he's not helping this scenario. If it got me free sandwiches... You know, you could feed me under the table like a dog right now. So Egon suggests that they could disarm the ghosts from of their uh, things, or they could try and remove the energy from them, and that will make them disappear. And while they're having this discussion, the spectres just arrive and just get into the Ecto-1 and just nick it, essentially, which is a problem because that's got their packs in it, and they're going to need those packs. Spectral Ghostbusters come back. That's when they go, wait, the spare proton pack that we've got just one, which I can't believe Egon would only have one spare, but we'll leave that aside. <laughs> yeah. This is also my favourite of the incidental music as well, with that sweet guitar like then. This is definitely my favourite of the lot. I just remembered, it only has half a charge. Why didn't you mention this earlier? Well, that'll let us hold them off for a few minutes. After that, after that, we've had it. I bet you that was a Peter job. Peter was meant to put it onto charge, and he <laughs> yeah. didn't. Oh, Peter. How do you charge an unlicensed 
particle accelerator. You call the Libyans. You call. I was gonna say, assume it's not like one of those little iPhone five volt USB <laughs> plugs. You just or, or you know cordless charging. You just put it in a dock. Peter is able to sort of like fire off of them a little bit, and it is making them weaker, but they're not going to last that long because they've only got half charge of this. So one of them is going to go and have to go out there and draw their fire, but they may not make it out alive. So who are we willing to lose? So the answer is Janine. Just kidding, just kidding. And then when Janine does, it says, no, it definitely isn't me, Ray offers that he's going to go, but Slimer, no, not Ray, not Ray. And so he kisses uh, Ray and he goes out there and starts like dodging their shots and weaving in and out of them. I can't believe you just welcomed me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not surprising as, you know, Ray is the one that treats him the nicest, basically doesn't treat him like a pest, doesn't treat him like a science experiment. And I guess the main difference between Ray and Winston is Ray feeds him. Yeah. Winston actually treats Slimer fairly nicely. He sees him and Winston waves. This is their first encounter. And then Winston goes, I'm going to go make some tea or coffee. That's my that's my bit of this episode done. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot to do, does Winston, uh, in this episode. But it does get better. There's some Winston-centric episodes coming up. He gets a fair shake in this series. Oh, yeah. Ragtime Booze is a fantastic episode for, oh. for Winston. That was going to be one of my other suggestions as well, because that was actually on the same VHS as Knock Knock. Um, so anyway, they uh, they go out there and they're trying to like you know blast Slimer and he's dodging in out of them. And this is where we get one of my favourite things about the real Ghostbusters, which is that Venkman's relationship with Slimer is that you slime me, you little spud. I hate you. You're you're the worst. You keep stealing my food. I'm gonna blast you. I'm gonna blast you. I'm gonna blast you. But it's also he loves him. You zap my little buddy. You shot my little buddy. Oh, come here, you little spud. Oh, I don't mind you too much. I, I, I like it. I really like their relationship. I just always assumed that he was very protective over Slimer because, you know, that was that was his bounty to claim. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> Slimer goes around and he wears them down because obviously every time they fire the proton packs, the spectral Ghostbusters are using their own energy, their own life force, if you will. They're made of exoplasmic energy. And so they're not shooting the traditional particle stream. They're shooting ectoplasmic energy, but they're shooting it at another ghost. Now, while I can understand that it, you know, would fuck up the Ghostbusters, what does it actually do <laughs> to Slimer? It, it is not going to have the same sort of effect as a, a standard Neutrana wand. Is it just kind of like slapping him? It's like, you know, <laughs> if I was just to slap you around the face, you know, as opposed to electrocuting you, it would like, it would yeah. still have an impact because Slimer's down, you know, he's, he's winged and he's down. But I was just trying to work out, is it the same sort of impact that a proton pack normal would have? Or are we looking at it as more, you know, a punch? Say goodnight, fellas, because the real Ghostbusters are here to stay. But the real Ghostbusters are here to stay. They go and get their proper packs uh, and they blast them and trap them. Slimer hugs Ray um, and they decide that we're going to keep Slimer. We're going to keep him around because he is of immense scientific interest, and Peter eventually does agree. But he then pretends to the uh, reporter, to Cynthia, that the others agreed. Yeah, it does give us also a shot of one of the most harrowing things I think I see in all of the real Ghostbusters, Slimer with anime waifu eyes. (laughs) Never, ever again. No, I do not want to see Slimer body pillows. Just, Just no. Uh, the reporter is very happy with that she's got her story and she leaves. And Peter gives her, you know, the line of, she's crazy, Robbie, you know. Oh, it's, he's a proper ladies' man. He is he's as horny for all the women in this show as Janine is for Egon. 
froth of I wonder what kind of story it'll be. Yeah. What kind of story can she tell? I mean, she only interviewed Peter. What can I say, fellas? I guess when she saw me, she saw all she needed. And now for our feature story, the hidden history of the Ghostbusters. It's a fascinating look at what most of us may not know about our local heroes. In particular, our story tonight is about a real hero, a Ghostbuster among Ghostbusters. Aw, shucks. I refer, of course, to that unsung member of the Ghostbusters, Slimer. Slimer? I never liked you. And this is my popcorn, Spud. Oh, well. Win some, lose some. And then later on that evening, they're sitting down and they're watching TV for the hidden story of the Ghostbusters. And, you know, it's this long setup for the punchline. It's that the real hero of the Ghostbusters is the unsung hero, Slimer. He's the Ghostbuster among Ghostbusters. And then we get that more the duality of Peter Venkman's character. It was like, I never liked you. This is my popcorn. No one else is having my popcorn. Oh, okay. It's one of those things. You win some, you lose some. Here's some popcorn. And then we cut to the end credits, which always struck me as slightly unusual because it's a, yeah, you're doing the dance movement. It's clearly a parade, like a city parade. I can't think of many cartoon series that have a specific animated ending. Mm. Sometimes they'll have clips from the previous episode. Things like the raccoons kind of had a music video along with a banging, oh. banging theme music. You can run with, run us. with us. Which, you know, that was released as a single. That, oh, that, that, that charted. And there's also a really good cover of it on Spotify. Yeah, the Cybertronic Spree, who are a, uh, they're a Transformers band, basically. They were a band that dress up like the Transformers and they do uh, covers of, you know, songs from the Transformers. They actually released an album last year. They kickstarted an album last year, which I, I backed, which was basically them doing the entire um, uh, Transformers the movie soundtrack. They do a fantastic cover of the Raccoons' um, Run With Us. It's a song that is, it's so good. I had it on my playlist, on our car playlist, and my wife was convinced, like, she didn't know it was from a cartoon. She just knew, she just thought it was like a real song. And I was like, oh, no, no, this was the ending credits of a cartoon. It's so good. The version that I'm thinking of that's on Spotify is by a band called Glitterwool. Mm. And that one double hands the vocals, so they swap verses. So it's female singer, male singer. It's very kind of true the original but also maybe even more synth wavy it's definitely of that kind of gunship accessible synth wave style it's a great cover yeah but we of course get an instrumental version of ray parker jr's ghostbusters with a slightly different instrumental breakdown while the ghostbusters march and it's all going well until oh no longer onion head now slimer gets involved slimes them trips them up and then they chase him off screen and we're once again reminded that we've just seen Dick. <laughs> so that was uh, Citizen Ghost. It's episode 11 of series one of The Real Ghostbusters. It is a show that is so, so dear to my heart. 
Um, you know, I mentioned that this, there were three cartoon series that I was obsessed with as a child. Um, that obsessed with to the point that I got toys from. Like I was obsessed with Spider-Man and Batman, the animated series, but I never had the toys of those. I did have the toys of the real Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles and Bucky O'Hare. And like, I've, I've talked a lot about the toys that I, I got during this because I love this show so, so much. When Time Life released that that box set in 2008, I had a pre-order from it. I imported it from America. I took the day off work because I knew it was going to arrive on a specific day so I could I could watch it. And I like just spent the entire day watching through, watching through all the special features. Each, almost every single episode has a specific introduction by whether it's one of the writers, whether it's one of the voice cast, whether it's one of the producers. It is a fantastic it's, we were talking off mic unfortunately it's really hard to get hold of now because it was it sold so poorly basically that it was it didn't get a lot of uh, uh many reprints you can get the series like as a whole you can get it for about 40 quid um in stand i think it's in standard death which, which doesn't really matter too much but it doesn't have any unfortunately it has none of the extras which are which are really nice I mean, I would say just for season one and season two and the handful of later season episodes that are worth checking out, you're paying 40 quid for 70 odd episodes. It's still worth the money. Uh, you can also buy them off Amazon uh, on demand. I think they might be on iTunes and a few other things. They're out there and they're worth checking out. Yeah. And if you're looking for like a free version, you can probably find the episodes on Daily Motion. Um, you know, if you really want to go out the way to watch it, like this episode I know is on Daily Motion because um, I had to I watched it on there before I dug out my because I've just moved house um, dug out my the, the Time Life DVD collection so I could watch it this morning yeah I, I absolutely adore this series so 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 much and I was thrilled that it won uh, the poll and I'm really glad that we decided to do this episode as well as much as I would have liked to have done Knock Knock because I pretty much can do that whole episode verbatim because I had a you know it was the, it was the episode I watched the most of and um but oh, it was so fun to do this one because it's a brilliant continuation of the movie and is basically there to be like, this is why things have changed. This is why they're in different suits. This is why the containment field is bigger. This is why uh, Slimer is here. And I, yeah, and I, I just, I, I loved it for that. It was, I mean, while we talk about it as a Saturday morning cartoon, uh, primarily in America, for me, this was CITV. This was after school stuff, yeah. There were some things I'm sad that I didn't grow up with either because I was too young or I was too old. But for every single one of those, I'm like, not Ghostbusters. It's, it's a it's a film. It's my favorite film of all time. It's a film that I've seen. Oh man, who can even tell the amount of times that, that I've seen it on the, the big screen? Like when it got the, the 30th anniversary re-release. Um, actually, was the 30th anniversary or was the 25th? It was one of them. They re-released it in the cinemas for like a week. And I went in full cosplay uh, with a friend of mine who was very embarrassed to be there with me because I was there in my full uh, Peter Venkman uh, outfit. I love it dearly. And yeah, this, this show, and I'm, as I said, I'm thrilled that this one, and I really enjoyed doing this episode as well. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to this. Um, special thanks to James uh, of Serial Geek for, um, I was chatting with him today uh, about the show. Um, and we were basically we were talking about, because like, we, were, we were supposed to go for drinks last year. And we were literally, we had a date in the diary that we were going to go for drinks last year. It's something that we have been like planning to do for years. Like we've been planning to try and go for drinks together and it's never come about. And last year was the year we were finally going to get to go for a drink. A date was in the diary and then the bloody pandemic happened and we couldn't go for that drink. So we were just chatting today being like, it's going to be so lovely when we can actually go and have that drink that we've been planning for a while. So we can just talk about the real Ghostbusters and wrestling. 
in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> in 2022, yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So a special shout out to him because you know for providing um, uh, some of the research for this, providing me for the, the date that this episode aired, and you know uh, the Serial Geek magazine that Ash referenced earlier. Lovely, lovely bloke. Go and find him on Twitter at Serial Geek. Just a really, really nice guy. Big, big fan of James. Also, go and buy the the magazines as well because they're really great. And as I said, those those compilations he's put together that are available and will be emailed to you as PDFs. They're a great way to get a sample, particularly of some of those early issues. You know, there's a lot of them are out of print. They were only done in limited print runs. But yeah, we're going to draw that to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next month with another episode of uh, Under Consultation Extra. Um, we're also going to have uh, a bit of an announcement of what we're doing about Lights, Camera, Game Over, the podcast, uh, and what we're doing that because we've now hit our 50 back a goal. So we've got plans for it, but it isn't. We're going to have to like we've got very busy jobs at the moment, um, and kind of taking on this extra podcast has been way more work than we thought it was going to be. Um, and under consultation is, is a lot more work than we intended it to be as well. But we do have plans for it, which we'll uh, announce in due course. But thank you all so much for being amazing backers uh, of this show. We really, really appreciate it, particularly because there's bloody pandemic on. I am very much looking forward to talking about video game based movies. Particularly because, to be honest, Luke, for a lot of them, I can just kick my heels because you're a video game movie man. You've written a book on it. I, yeah, I just I get to sit back and relax and make jokes. <laughs> but that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for being amazing backers. Uh, we will see you on the next episode of Under Consultation Extra. Take care. Good night.